Amen. Good morning, everyone. Wasn't that sweet? Thank you, team. Uh, Welcome to the gathering of Seven Oaks Alliance Church. Uh, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, Delighted to worship with you this morning. Hello to our online community. Uh, Glad you're with us as well. Um, I wonder if you've made any New Year's resolutions uh, this year. I wonder if you've made any spiritual uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, Quite often people will make those kind of things related to their health and healthy living, uh, perhaps some goals that you want to achieve. I wonder if you've asked the Lord about what you might want to achieve in your spiritual walk. And I just invite you to consider that. What are some spiritual disciplines maybe you've never practiced before that you want to practice Uh, this year? What is the character trait that has always been a a problem for you that you want to see weeded out and change? What are the things you want God to do in you? So let me just leave that with you. Uh, We are this morning going into a a new series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. I'm looking forward to uh, diving in. We're going to be journeying through that for a while uh, together uh, this year uh, as well, which is is great. Uh, Peter, a man who I think Uh, If he was here and if we knew him, we'd probably describe him as a kind of a guy who was all in. You know, he was probably your sort of loud living, large living, perhaps slightly impulsive, heart on the sleeve kind of guy. A man who, when I think about Peter, I imagine probably didn't have a very narrow or short emotional bandwidth, but rather had a pretty wide or big one. Uh, What I mean by that is that when Peter had highs, they were really high, but when Peter had lows, they were probably really emotionally low. And I imagine the particularly low one for Peter was the death of Jesus, his, his friend, his mentor, his Messiah, his leader, his rabbi, his teacher. I mean, this would be a low point for anyone. The manner in which Jesus died especially so. But I imagine for Peter, it would have been particularly low because of his denial, just after Jesus was arrested, uh, before he was tried, before he was crucified, a, a really uh, disconcerting time uh, for the disciples, no doubt. They were in shock and turmoil, I'm sure. Uh, Peter actually uh, denied even knowing Jesus three times. And then all of a sudden, the Bible says the cock crowed. And Peter in that moment remembered the words of Jesus when he said, uh, you'll actually, when, when the cock crows, you'll have denied me three times, you'll have denied even knowing me. And that had come after one of those kind of blustery Peter moments where he said, well, everybody may desert you, Jesus, but I won't, you know, and then Jesus said that, and then the cock crows, and the Bible says that he wept bitterly. I imagine he was feeling a lot of guilt, shame, perhaps even self-hatred in that moment. A difficult, difficult time for Peter. But despite that low of lows, just a short while later on the day of Pentecost, a renewed and forgiven and reinstated Peter declared to a crowd of people that the kingdom was finally breaking in in this crucified Messiah. Peter was declaring to this crowd that something had happened in the world that would change the world forever. A new age had begun in which the living God was going to do something new and amazing in the world. Brand new life, forgiveness, mercy, power, victory, hope, a decisive victory over darkness. 
a possibility now that sadness and pain were going to come to an end forever, spring flowers finally blooming after a long, long, cold winter. This Christmas time uh, in my house, we watched um, the Narnia movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We had not watched that in years, and we just decided we'd want to watch it. And if you know that story, you'll know that Narnia was, was kept in this perpetual winter until Aslan got on the move, and then things began to change. This new thing that was emerging was going to be available for those people in the crowd who were listening to Peter that day. It would start with them, but then Peter says in Acts 2 verse 3, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far away or far off. This good news, this gospel was for everyone. It was for you and it's for me. I love this part of the Bible, church family. I love this part of the Bible because it's just amazing to me how Peter could go from that place, go from that place of being so low to this amazing declaration of truth. He could go from denier to the person on whom Christ was going to build his church. He was going to go from fearful hiding to bold preacher. And do you know how? Do you know how he was able to do it? It wasn't because Peter, you know, finally got over it. He didn't finally get over it. He didn't just pull his socks up. No, left to just trying to get over it himself, he ended up going back to what he knew. He ended up going to be a fisherman because for him, he was disqualified now. It was over. It was finished. He'd failed. He'd failed Jesus and he denied him. He was on the outs. It was done. There was no getting over it. No, the only way he was able to boldly preach that day is because he had an experience with the risen Jesus and it transformed him. Jesus met him on a beach, across a charcoal fire, took him back to the place where he denied him across a charcoal fire. He made him face that place, and he reinstated him as apostle. Mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, and it transformed Peter's life, and he was never the same. And so he quit hiding, and he started preaching, and no one was going to stop him preaching. I love that part of the Bible. We're beginning a new series, as I said, in the Gospel of Mark. So you might be sitting there and saying, well, just like Matthew is kind of confused by the fact that it's not Christmas anymore, uh, maybe Jamie's confused that, you know, he's talking about Peter and we're supposed to be doing Mark. Um, I'm not confused, I promise you, and nor was Matthew. Um, neither of us are confused. We are quite sane. Um, and uh, the reason I'm talking about Peter and not Mark is because a lot of scholars and the dominant view of the early church fathers was that the gospel written by Mark was actually the sayings of Peter and the teaching of Peter. A lot of scholars believe it's a collection of his teachings written by the hand of Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but largely Peter's stories and Peter's words. You see, Matthew and John, two of the other gospel writers, were disciples of Jesus. They, so they were writing as eyewitnesses. They, they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They knew him. They, they'd seen him do things, and they knew his stories. And so they were able to write as eyewitnesses. Mark and Luke were not. And so Luke, in his gospel, I mean, he says, he says, I set out to, to write an orderly account. He was, a, he was a detailed guy. He probably interviewed people and talked with people and collected stories like a reporter and then wrote kind of a biography, kind of. 
a mark for Mark, uh, um, according to what we, uh, what one of the early scholars said, and, and what all current day scholars said, is that he was very close with Peter. He ministered with Peter. He followed him around. He heard his sermons, and then he wrote down what he remembered, inspired by the Spirit. Of the so it was a collection of stories and sayings and sermons then of Peter. So who's Mark then? Well, that's debated. Um, if it's the Mark who a lot of people think it is, then it's John Mark from the New Testament. And John Mark was a Jewish Christian who lived in Jerusalem with his mother Mary. And we know from Acts chapter 12 that this was one of the gathering places of the early church. So a church actually met in Mark and his mother Mary's home. And some people even say it could have been the place of the upper room. It could have been the location. that We can't know that, but it could have been possibly the place uh, where the upper room was held. Um, later on, uh, when Peter writes his letter, first Peter, he calls Mark my son, which he wasn't actually his son, but what it might mean is that actually Mark came to faith through the preaching of Peter or through the witness of Peter. So he called him my son, like my son in the faith. And so that connects the two of them together. This was the Mark who went on a missionary journey with, with Paul and Barnabas, and, and for an unknown reason, partway through the first missionary journey, uh, he returns home, and, and Paul's a little ticked off, and they have a rift. And Barnabas, the encourager, actually follows Mark, and, and, and uh, Paul carries on with Silas and his missionary journey, and he, he catches up with Mark, and they work together on the island of Cyprus, and Mark and Barnabas were actually cousins. And they worked together uh, on Cyprus. And then sometime later, we know, Mark worked with Paul in Rome. And so they obviously reconciled. So even the early church heroes can have relational problems and fall out and get mad at each other, but they reconciled. They were big boys. They got over it. They forgave each other. So that's good. And then sometime after that, Paul, uh, probably after the death of Paul, uh, Mark stayed on in Rome and worked uh, with Peter. So, so Mark was an important guy in those early days of the church. He worked alongside some key players. Uh, he was quite possibly converted uh, by Peter. Uh, and then he wrote this gospel, which is largely Peter's uh, words and sayings. And one of the unique things about the gospel of Mark is that it's, um, it's quite short. It's a lot shorter than the others. Uh, but it's really action-packed, and it's full of activity. And so uh, if you read Matthew and Luke, you'll get these long kind of narrative teachings like the Sermon on the Mount and, and some of those long kind of expansive parables and so on. You don't find a lot of that in Mark. Uh, Mark is much more interested in story and episode, and so it's action-oriented. You have Jesus healing this person, and then he delivered this person from a demon, and then he went here. It's just action, action, action. And that's why we've chosen the, uh, the, the graphic, the season, uh, the series graphic with the Action Bible, the kids' Action Bible. It's this idea that Mark is full of action. And it actually helps me further believe that these are the sayings of Peter. Because if Peter was an impulsive, kind of uh, heart-in-your-sleeve kind of a guy, then he'd be less drawn to long narrative portions, and he'd be much more interested in what Jesus did. And so I think this has the hallmarks of Peter all over it. So enough of an intro to Mark. We're going to read uh, the first eight verses of the gospel. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you can do. Otherwise, it will be behind my head. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, 
See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. God's word to us this morning. Amen. So there is no birth story in Mark. Uh, Mark just dives straight into the action. Uh, in Matthew, you know, you get the story of the Magi and, um, and, and the angels to Mary and Joseph. In Luke, you get the story of the shepherds and the angels and so on. In Mark, he doesn't even, he doesn't even go there. Uh, and that's why it was even more uh, kind of fun this morning to have the, um, the sort of incarnation stories and the Christmas stories because Mark skips them. And uh, Mark dives straight in to the ministry of John the Baptist. But the very first verse is, is, is a purpose of his writing, the good news, the gospel. This is Peter's purpose, Mark's purpose, to declare the good news, the gospel. And right away, he states in verse 1 that it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the identity of Jesus right up front, who he is. And when we work our way through the gospel and other gospels as well, there's this very clear theme there that Jesus is really cagey on, on, on wanting, allowing people to know who he is in his identity. He doesn't want them to know. He says, go, go back into the village and tell people what God has done for you. But, but he doesn't want them to reveal who he was. He, he's sort of like the veiled Messiah until the right time. And so we're going to see that, but, but here, when he's writing the gospel after, you know, many years after Jesus had died and been resurrected, when he's writing the gospel, the, the identity of Jesus is right up front. This is who we're talking about, the Son of God. And then he moves on to there into verse 2, and he blends three parts of Scripture together. Uh, Exodus 23, verse 20, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. Malachi 3.1, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one in the wilderness, prepare the way, make his path straight. So he blends these three different parts of the Old Testament and weaves them together. But he says that it's according to the prophet Isaiah, which is only a third true. Because there's Exodus and Malachi in there as well. But that's a fairly somewhat common thing to do for the authors. They blend sort of unifying, they unify the passages kind of together under the influence of the Spirit, but they might say, attach it to just one individual, and it's maybe somebody who has had a specific impact upon them or, or on the passage. And there's a lot of Isaiah's theme, uh, Isaiah themes uh, in Mark, and so, so that's just kind of how it works. So Exodus 23. This is about the messenger who went ahead of them. The people of God, after being liberated from Egypt, were in the wilderness, and a messenger went ahead of them. A pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, went ahead of them, leading them on. And so that's kind of what he's using to say, another one is coming who's going to lead the way. 
Isaiah 40 is about a second exodus that is coming. Isaiah was prophesying many, many years after the, the exodus time when Israel were under judgment and they're staring down the barrel of exile. And he's saying to them, don't worry, the day is going to come where I'll lead you back out of exile. There'll be another exodus, a second exodus, where you'll be led out of your slavery and into freedom and into deliverance. And that day is coming. And so he blends these things together, the messenger going before you and, and the leading out once again of, um, from your slavery. And then Malachi 3 is about a coming messenger who's going to come and prepare the way, and not only prepare the way for them, but prepare the way for the Lord to come. And he brings those three things together, painting a picture of when once again the people will be led out of exile, out of slavery, into freedom, into deliverance. God himself will go before him, and the messenger will come to declare that that day is at hand. And that's what he's doing. If you haven't figured it out yet, which I'm sure you have because you're all really smart, uh, John the Baptist is the messenger out in the wilderness. He's the coming one warning the people to prepare the way. He's the voice in the wilderness. John was actually literally out in the wilderness. He wasn't in the city of Jerusalem. He was out in the wilds. And that's important because of all the wilderness themes for the Old Testament. He was telling a story just by his presence out there in the wilderness. And people were going out to him, and we're told then what he was wearing and what he was eating. Why? Why are we told that? What's the relevance of that? Why do we, know, why do we need to know something about um, John's wardrobe? Why do we need, you know, his Instagram of his meal? <laughs> I mean, nobody really cares about Instagrams of meals, by the way. Um, but, uh, but it's still fun to do. Um, why do we need to know this stuff? What, what, why is that important? Well, it's actually really important because it actually tells us a lot. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair, so he had a big kind of cloak on, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. The reason is it because it gives away his identity. He's not just another prophet. He's an Elijah-type prophet. How do we know he's an Elijah-type prophet? In 1 Kings verse 8, they answered him, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He was known by his appearance. The king knew who he was and who was being described to him by his attire, what he was wearing. Why does that matter? It matters because we're being told that John the Baptist is Malachi's Elijah. Who's Malachi's Elijah? Well, we read there's part of Malachi chapter 3 in there, remember? I'm sending a messenger ahead of you. Well, if we were to read on in Malachi 4, the prophet says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. It had been 400 years since he was around. 400 silent years. The people of God hadn't heard a prophetic voice for 400 years. Now, all of a sudden, we have a prophet on the scene who's out there in the wilderness and is telling us that these prophecies of old are now ready to come to pass, and his location in the wilderness and his dress and his diet all point to his prophetic ministry. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll know that this is Malachi's Elijah. He's finally here. Spring is blooming after a long, long, cold winter. 
The people, of course, were hoping for the Lord to come and execute judgment on the Romans and, and give them their land back. They weren't quite ready for a humble king who was going to tell them to love their enemies. Question remains for us. So how exactly did John the Baptist tell them to prepare the way? Like, that's a good question. I mean, the time has arrived. Prophetic utterances are finally here after 400 years of silence. Malachi's prophecy and Isaiah's and many others have come to pass at last. We're poised for the second exodus that Isaiah talked about. We're, we're looking forward to this. Malachi's Elijah, John the Baptist, is on the scene, and he's telling people to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. But how do we prepare? Do we decorate our homes? Do we put a red carpet out in the wilderness for him? Like, how do we prepare? What are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us, you repent. You repent. That's how you prepare the way of the Lord. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. You repent, you confess, you start living right. You start lining your life up with the kingdom. And don't we have to do that the same? Yeah. If you want to prepare your way for the Lord, if you want to expand your heart for more of him, you've got to repent. You've got to weed out that junk. It's what we were doing this morning. Part of what was happening was he was baptizing people. He was out there baptizing people. Now, we have to be careful here because what John the Baptist was doing is not the same as what we do here when we have the baptismal tank in church. It's not the same as what we do out of the lake when we baptize people. It wasn't the same thing. Uh, the church has done that for 2,000 years, and what it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a rite that we do for people in response to faith, faith in the risen Christ, and we baptize them um, in response to belief. Uh, that isn't what John was doing because Jesus hadn't died yet, Jesus hadn't even come on the scene yet, and he hadn't, certainly hadn't been resurrected yet, so it's not the same thing. It's different. So what was John doing? Well, two things at least. From a prophetic point of view, again, it was symbolic of, of exodus, of, of, of taking land, of hope and future. It's, it's fitting that he was doing it in the River Jordan. Why? Because that was the very river that the ancestors crossed as they took the promised land. So it's profoundly symbolic and prophetic. It's also prophetic of the Exodus itself, where there was also a crossing of a body of water, the Red Sea. It was a going down into and a coming up out of. So part of what he was doing was, was prophetic. It was John the Baptist just in terms of what he was wearing and where he was, and now he's in the river baptizing people, reenacting the Exodus, again reaffirming to the people that the second Exodus was at hand. From another perspective, it was like a washing as well. It was a symbolic act of washing away the sin. It was a baptism of repentance, so as well as the people verbally confessing their sins, they're also engaging in kind of like a tangible, earthy practice that symbolized this washing and this cleaning and, and preparing their heart for the coming of the king. What is remarkable about it, though, is that Jews were doing it. Why is that remarkable? 
it's remarkable because Christians didn't invent baptism, by the way. We didn't invent going into water and coming up out of it. That, was, that wasn't a Christian invention. They actually used to do something like this. The Jews did something like this. And the time at which they did it was when a Gentile wanted to become part of the covenant people. They would have a ceremonial washing, like a baptism. And it, and, and it was important because Gentiles were unclean, according to the Jews. And so it was a way in which they could be cleansed ceremonially in order to come into and become part of the covenant people. It was an entry right into the people. And so Jews don't need to do that because they're already part of the covenant people. They're already Jews. They're ethnically Jewish. But what John was doing is he was saying, no, no, all people need to come and have a baptism of repentance. And you can imagine maybe some Jews thinking, I don't need to do that. I'm not an unclean Gentile. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. My daddy was this and my granddaddy was this. Like, John is saying your lineage doesn't matter. Everybody needs to come and prepare the way of the Lord. This is a message for Israel. John was leveling the field. And then the passage comes to a close with John the Baptist saying, the one who's coming, by the way, he's so powerful, and he's so amazing, and he's so much better than me. Like, I'm not even, I, can't, I couldn't even tie a shoe. Like, he's so amazing. And, but what he's going to do is what I've done with water, he's going to do with the Holy Spirit. That's who's coming. And I love that. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. He's going to dunk you in the Spirit. The Spirit's going to fill you and doing you what water cannot do. You see, when you get ceremonially cleaned, you're going to need to be cleaned again. At some point, you're going to need to be washed again because, you know, you get dirty. But the Spirit will cleanse you at the heart and renew you at the level of the heart. John can't do that. The church can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can forgive you and cleanse you fully and completely at a heart and soul level and cleanse you to your inner being. So we're left with a question, okay then, so even after I'm cleansed by Jesus at a renewed level, I still sin. So don't I need, do I need to like invite him into my heart again? No. But we have to be ceremonially washed again. We need to clean ourselves again. The answer is No. Because you're still a human and you live in this now and not yet reality. We're, we're part of the kingdom, but the kingdom's still coming. We live as emissaries of the kingdom, but the kingdom is, is an, here as an outpost, but it's not here in all of its fullness. You are cleansed in a positional sense, in a salvific sense, and that's true and complete, but you're still human. And you can't yet fully live up to what is true about you at a salvific level. And so the life of discipleship and the life of following Jesus and the life of sanctification is all about learning to live in sync with the Spirit, learning to live with what's true about your identity. That's why we talk about discipleship and growing in our faith. And we should be making progress. We should be growing in our spiritual lives unless there's some kind of blockage. And that's why I said at the beginning, are you making resolutions about your spiritual walk? Don't you want to be different 12 months from now than you are right now? Yes. We should all want that. We should all want to grow. And we should be growing. It's all about learning to live in a broken world, but according to a different kingdom. It's all about transferring our allegiance from the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world and its values and transferring our allegiance to the kingdom of God and its values. 
And that takes a lifetime. And that's a process. And we do that as we cultivate our life with Jesus and we depend on the Spirit and we become part of important community where we encourage each other in our faith walk and we help each other. So by way of application today, as we come to a close, at the beginning of yet another new year, are you preparing the way of the Lord in your own heart? See, God comes in a very real, concrete sense when you get saved, when you come to Jesus, but God continually comes to you throughout your life to renew you and refresh you and challenge you and put his finger on things in your life that he wants to weed out of you and to call you into to, to ministry callings that he's got for you to serve him in the world. Is the Lord beckoning you and what's he asking you to do? And are you preparing the way? Where's your repentance at? What does a confessional lifestyle look like for you? Is there an accumulation of sin and brokenness in your life that is like baggage and you keep ignoring it? You need to stop ignoring it because it'll only hurt you. Are you regularly doing the hard and necessary work, but the freeing and renewing and wonderful work of doing what we did during worship this morning, going before the Lord and saying, God, search me. Show me if there's things in me that aren't right. Show me if I had conversations today that weren't right, if I treated people poorly. Show me if there's, if there's some character trait in me that needs to be renewed and changed. Like, are you doing the hard work of preparing the way for him? Because what happens is when you live in sync with the Spirit, you actually open more of yourself to him and allow more of him in. Are you preparing the way of the Lord to do in you more than you could ask or imagine? And secondly, I just want to close by saying that in, in uh, early December, I think it was early December, I mentioned to you that we're, we're holding a soul care conference here uh, in March, on uh, March 3rd and 4th. It's a full day Friday and a full day Saturday. Long days, full days, intense days, wonderful days. And the reason I'm bringing it up, there's two reasons. The first reason is just to put those dates before you again uh, so that you know that they're coming. Uh, because I know for some of you, you might work on Fridays, you might work on Saturdays. And, and, but maybe if you know early enough, you can book some time off to be able to be part of this. And uh, so we're going to get more information out in the coming kind of weeks in terms of how to register and get a ticket and uh, how much it's going to cost and all those kind of different things that we're, we need to organize. We're working on those things. Uh, but I just wanted to get it before you uh, today and, and, and mention it, uh, one, to get on your radar, but two, mention it because the Soul Care Conference is a key equipping, renewing, transformational kind of experience that is actually key for everything we've discussed today. It, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's about renewing yourself at a soul level and, and dealing with those things that hinder you in your spiritual walk and actually help you to finally break free from some of that garbage in order to be more fully available to Jesus and expand your inner world so you can be filled with more of him. So let me encourage you to make a note in your calendar and see if you can be part of that uh, when we get there. So. Uh, God bless you, and uh, let's sing again together.